right. and then we can you know we can just officially start whenever um let me get let me get some stuff pulled up I'm literally about to go back through our text messages <laughs> to remember I, what I we know, talked about. I, I, I was had like, so stop, much. Save I know. It. <laughs> I had so much that I wanted to say. Um, yeah. And every I mean, text I, I sent was like, that's five less minutes we can talk tomorrow. Well, we should still go over it, like, because we know where we stand. Um, and it's honestly great that we're coming from different sides. Yeah, this is make for a really juicy conversation. Yeah, so I'm going to have that up because this is a fun, I mean, it's just a cognitive versus behavioral approach, which is a fantastic debate. And in like the history of psychology, the like before behaviorism, they were doing like hypnotism and mysticism and stuff that didn't work at all, um, like structuralism and um this type of like inward thinking and then you write down what you did and they were like this is how the brain works obviously completely inaccurate you can report whatever you want and that might not be what's actually happening so then behaviorism came through and was like we're gonna do a natural science here and they started experimenting on animals as like insight into the human brain which worked really well and then cognitive psychologists came by and were like we can use this hard natural science to study the mind and, you know, those more mystical parts that behaviorism sort of ignored. Um, and there's a debate whether behaviorism died and cognitive psychology like took over or if behaviorism morphed into cognitive psychology and it wasn't a defeat of behaviorism. It was, a, you know, they worked together to come here now. Because cognitive psychology is, some of it is a hard science. They're in there with MRIs and getting data and stuff. So uh, not all of it, but a lot of it is like, yeah, this is something that a biologist would look at. You know, it makes sense to them too. So. Well, and I'd have to imagine all of that takes place in the same historical frame as um, the rest of the social sciences trying to solidify themselves as legitimate sciences, right? So we have um, yeah. um, mid-1800s, late-1800s, um, a German historian, um, I forget his first name, but his last name is von Ranke, V-A-N-R-A-N-K-E. Um, and he, I'm probably misremembering this, but he um, founded a school in like a school of history, right? The same way that you would go to a college and you would do the participate in the school of business or whatever. He founded a school of history that reevaluated and tried to reframe historical enterprises as hard science, right? How do we mm -hmm. define fact? And then how can we use those facts to make claims? Um, what do we, when we look back in time, what historical documents are we using? How can we validate or invalidate those as facts? And then how can we use that to make more stringent and rigorous claims as opposed to just kind of like what you were just referencing that, that disconnected or abstract, um, 
yeah i think that voice in a science is integral like if there's a science or a branch of academia that doesn't have someone begging you to have data and have facts and go back to you know the scientific method and just really rest on that hard science foundation then you're going to end up in a really weird area that probably doesn't work like hypnotism but it can't be the only voice because you do need to have that creativity and that you know that the art side of it as well it's like the there's a fine balance but if you don't have that person who's like please for the love of god have sources then you're just making you're just making stuff up yeah well in it's fun yeah. but it's not science before we continue this i gotta i left my drink on the other side of the room and it's calling to me oh and you reminded yes. me i'm I need to have a prop because I wanted to talk about something and I don't have it yet. All right. Good deal. I've been using my green M&M mug a lot more since, uh, <laughs> since they're like making her less sexy. Were you keeping up with that? tried answering you while I was walking around and I realized that I was not close enough to my microphone. I did not hear it. Um, but and, and no, I haven't, haven't ah, okay. kept up to it, kept up with it, but I am aware. <laughs> yeah. I've had this green m mug forever. I think mom got it like for me from Vegas and now it's even more sentimental because so I'm like, wow, they're taking away her eyelashes and taking away her high heels. Yeah. Which kind of fits in with what we were talking about last time with in-groups and social cues and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. How do we use those social cues and those social markers as heuristics? A little bit of cleaning house on my end and then we can officially get started All right and i think i'm gonna clip everything leading up to this point and separate it but i think your spiel about pre-rigor to post-rigor i think that would be a really good enticement clip release on its own because you did you laid that out really well okay distractions aside hopefully birds are being quiet for now kids are playing video games nice I which ones the, um they're playing slime rancher right now they were playing overcooked earlier but they're waiting on me to help them out with that yeah, that's hard for me. It is. There's a lot of moving pieces. 
yeah and things catch on fire and it's total chaos i think that's the point yeah. though it is all right i think i'm about as good as i'm gonna be all right me too All right. How do you want to start? Um, are we doing introductions to start every episode or? Um, eventually what's going to happen is I'm going to take the. Do you hear the dogs? Those are my. I didn't know what dogs. it was. Yeah. It sounded like a forlorn um, ghost. Um. No, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to start, when I start editing these out, I'm going to take just the music background and let that play for like two bars and I can do just a vocal introduction. Hey, welcome back everybody. In this episode, Christy and I talk about blah, 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 blah. Okay. And then yeah. fade that into the intro music with the words in it and then fade that straight into our conversation. All right. I like that. Um, I do think it's for the topic that we're about to dive into, like language and communication, we are on different sides of an ongoing debate, which I think is perfect. Um, but it might be worthwhile to explain sort of our philosophy that we're coming in with and then dive into the topics. Okay. Um, well, then frame out yours. Right. Um, my... So for language and communication, the kind of Bible for a behaviorist is the Verbal Behavior book by B.F. Skinner. And it's a huge book. I've never read it cover to cover, but I've had to reference it for all of my classes. So I've read most of it at some point. And he breaks down language in a way that nobody ever had before. And the typical way is like nouns, verbs, sentences, you speak English, I speak Spanish. And he broke it down into four different uh, parts, um, four different verbal operants, which I can get into later. But the way that he broke it down has been so useful because you can use his model to teach someone who doesn't have any language to speak and it's less about the actual word that you're saying and more about what's motivating you to say that word and what happens right after you say that word that will make you say it again in the future or make you not say it again. Like if you're seven and you cuss, your parents slap you, you're not going to say that word again. Um, or maybe you will because it's fun to get in trouble and uh, do some risks. So he... Uh, this is not something, by the way, that speech language pathologists will use to teach language. Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. Um, it is, they use a, a slightly different model, um, which is neither here nor there. <laughs> but if you're talking to a speech language pathologist and you start mentioning like Skinner and verbal behavior, they might not be familiar with it. Um, so it is a little bit of a niche thing. It is not fully accepted or fully adopted into 
language and everyone who teaches language. Um, but it's, it's pretty pervasive. It's in a lot of areas. Yeah. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like just like almost everything else with Skinner, it's classical conditioning, right? The, the same way that, um, the same way that Pavlov conditioned his dogs to salivate at the ringing of a bell is the same way that parents condition their children to use communication devices, one of which would be language. Is that yeah. accurate? Okay. The key difference is that Pavlov just did pairing and Skinner took it one step farther. So Pavlov didn't have a consequence for when the dog salivated. It, they just did it. And that was the end of the experiment for Skinner. He would, put uh, he would pay attention to what happened directly after and see how that influenced if the dog salivate again or not so um it's classical conditioning is just what happens before the behavior the bell rings the dog starts salivating and that's the end of it and operant conditioning is the bell ring the dog starts salivating they get a treat so it's a little bit more comprehensive um, and a little bit easier. Almost everything is operant conditioning and very few things are purely classically conditioned because something happens after pretty everything you do. I mean, time moves forward. So there's usually a consequence in play. So that's the difference. But yeah, Pavlov did uh, get the ball rolling for sure. And see, we're... I guess where where I take issue with that is it's great as an explanatory it's great as an explanatory device to explain processes with which I don't think it does a sufficient job of explaining the innate ability to. And I think that's where you and I are coming at this from different perspectives. Um, yeah. Be, it's because almost, we. It's almost purposely left out of like Skinner's perspective because they are so reactionary towards what psychology used to be, which was like God gave you uh, hysteria and you should pray about it type psychology um so it's he was adamant about not going deeper and considering like the self or things like that um and he was very strict about just keeping it in the environment and not going inward and the last speech he gave was like a couple days before he died in like 1991 and the entire time he was begging people not to do introspection, not to look deeper, to stay in the environment, keep psychology pure. And uh, he, yeah, I mean, literally some of his dying words were, don't do that. So it is deliberately left out. Um, but I don't know, like, if he saw where psychology was today, if he would feel the same way, because we have, it's helpful to look inside a little bit. Well, yeah, because this is, love him or hate him this is what was revolutionary about freud and then jung which i think we could frame skinner's hard-nosed rigorous reaction as 
historically reactive to that. Um, yes. You know, keeping everything in, in because Freud was definitely that. If you allow people the opportunity to expansively talk uncensored, they will on their own stumble into the things that are causing them psychological distress. Right. That's that, that whole repression piece. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's through that introspection that we can resolve any incompleteness or incoherency with our conceptual structures to have them more accurately map reality, which would reduce all of that cognitive stress that we have from those, from that dissonance. Um, Jung would take that a step further and, and say that we can use those abstractions to have, to achieve the same thing or similar goals. Um, right. I, I think it was, um, Freud famously said that a, a boy can't become a man until his father has died. Jung would say, yes, but we can abstract that. And like that is to a degree, like what Christianity is founded off of. You have that, that model, right? That archetype of the hero, however you want to phrase it of Christ. And it's through his death that it allows the opportunity for everybody else to step up one level. Now, how that applies to language, um, I'm going to kind of table that and, and jump over because I think that while the framework that you're coming from is accurate and useful, I feel it is a little reductionist in the sense of it runs the risk of reducing the totality of human experience to responses and reactions to inputs essentially it takes any any semblance of human agency out of the equation obviously and you know obviously that's the extreme end and most people don't go down there but just like a couple of the other philosophies that, that that i take issue with if we follow it to its logical conclusion right the only reason that we learn language is because either our environmental conditions or our internal conditions necessitated the only reason it's necessitated is because we have these motivations or external motivations right all of that creates an image to me of people right that whole a force in motion will stay in motion unless acted upon by an external force right yeah i i kind of i picture if we didn't have these motivations to drive us to learn these skills, such as language, then what would Skinner say we are? Just just a, a flat monochrome line of existence. And I don't think that's accurate because organic life is too dynamic, constantly chasing that, chasing and unable to perpetually maintain that homeostasis. Right? We're constantly out of balance. There, there, there is no flat line to or organic life. Right. I think, I think that's where I would draw the line there. That is of course, assuming that I'm framing their argument properly and my argument as a response to that is being framed properly too. Yeah. And the reason like, I mean, Skinner really saps the fun out of it because 
he didn't want anything that wasn't based on data. And I can write down how many times you blink and I can see that and two people can come to a conclusion that that's what happened. You blinked three times, but some of that other stuff, I mean, these days you probably could see it on an fMRI. Um, we probably have ways, very expensive ways to get accurate data on them. Um, but most people don't like, if I were to do a study on language, I would only look at what you said and how you said it and stuff that's observable and anything else that's going on is not something I would be able to put into my equation. So I'm just going to ignore it, which is just a way to do it. Um, and your research is going to come out pretty good that way. Um, but it could, you could say there's a hole in that. Um, but so do you think language is like an effortful act that humans do, or is it more just an innate part of what humans do? I think the, I think the ability to be communicative is innate. How that ability manifests depends. So one of the, one of the articles I read in preparation for this um, is a professor of linguistics, um, Sally Coco Mufwene, and I'm, probably butchered his name, but it's pretty fantastic. Um, and what I like about it is he starts off kind of like how we did, where he recognizes that there were both the truly abstract and the truly grounded scientists that were trying to explain language, right? Um, Chomsky being one of them. Right? Yeah. So uh, Noam Chomsky's, it's, he called it the the universal grammar organ or the language organ right that we kind of have this biological primer yeah but then he kind of but then, famously hated skinner's yeah. ideas um, it's great and he kind of left it at that though he, he didn't didn't take it a step further so this is what i i liked about this article it's language as cultural technology where because we have that biological primer to be communicative Right. It's built into our, our, our DNA and our biology as a social species. The particular ways that that communicative ability manifests in language depends on the cultures that it's manifesting in. It also depends, those cultures depend on those inputs from that cultural artifact of language. Right. So it's, it's, like, it's like tandem skydiving where you have the, the two people tied to the one chute. Right, we have culture and we have language, and they're both a product of our innate biological primers, but they feed into each other in feedback loops. Right, so we we inherit this language rooted in all of these cultural understandings, and we can get to this this later about um, language as memes. Right, that the same fundamental function as memes. But then we can use that cultural inheritance to more or less direct the parameters of the culture that we are leaving as an inheritance for our future generations. 
That makes a lot of sense because it's looking at the environment that your language comes from and there's not really a way to separate those two. Like no. you grew up with a palm tree. So you have a word for palm trees. If I were not in a place that had palm trees, probably wouldn't come up with a word for that and pass it down to anyone because it's going to be a reflection of what you're doing every day. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's important too, because reading this article and um, hang on, I have to go yell at the kids for a minute. <laughs> not a problem. And all of my audience is going to hear how bad you guys behave when I'm not in the living room. You want everybody on YouTube hearing you guys act a fool? No? Then quit. Turn off the one-player game because you don't want to be patient while you play. And you don't want to be patient while he plays. And either find a game where you guys can both play or turn it off and go do something better. I should not have to be in the room to guarantee you guys know how to act right. You guys already know how to act right. I have to come out here to your grounded. And yes, I will clip that part out and make a note that my kids are being little jackasses. And <laughs> yeah, I mean they 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 do what kids do. Um, but it's it's like it's like I told them I shouldn't have to sit in the same room with them to make sure that they know how to behave because we know that they know how to behave, mm-hmm. right? And so me enforcing that good behavior is not them behaving and being responsible. It's me being double responsible, and that's not fair. Yeah, call that stimulus control. You are the stimulus for good behavior, uh, but it should come from them. <laughs> Well, do we okay. want to talk about kids acquiring language? We, we can, um, but let me, I, I'm, I think I remember where I was heading with this. So let me pick up okay. on this train of thought. So it's a little bit more seamless when I edit this out and, and we jump back in. Um, that, and I, I wrote, I don't know if you saw, I wrote a piece on my Substack about this. Speaking of which, I don't know how often you write creatively or not, but if you do, I suggest starting a Substack. It's free. At the very least, it's like a digital archive. And I use it for a lot of things. Um, a lot of my undergraduate and graduate level essays and research papers I've put up there. And I think I'm going to put my master's thesis up there in like 10 parts or something like that. You know, chunkable and readable. Yeah. But um, so audience, if you're listening, if you haven't read my Substack yet, go over there and read it first because it'll prime you for what I'm about to talk about here because it, we get a, a, a little deep. Um, and Mufwani brings this up. He talks about it from a biological sense, but I, I abstract it out and do one level higher of analysis that um, 
the potentials of action within any system are naturally and inherently bounded by the parameters of that system. Scaling it down, particularizing it a little bit more, what I mean by that is we, the reason we have certain sounds for certain things is partly because of the cultures that it arose in, but also partly because of biological limitations. We can only, like the larynx can only make so many different sounds at once. The human tongue can only articulate so many different sounds at once. And those parameters naturally bound the extent to which we can articulate words. On top of that, the language processing unit in our brains is bounded too. At the very least, we have response times um, in all of the fine tuning of the neurophysiology to process and then respond to things. Um, but it's still, it, it's, it's bounded at least in some capacity. We might have wiggle room within those bounds, but it's still there. That's what I was going to bring up earlier about the, the biological piece. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it, it is shaped by how you grew up in the culture that you're in. Um, and a good example of that is the sound r and the sound l ul and er mm -hmm. for people who grew up hearing that differentiation it's easier it sounds very different to me but to people who grew up speaking mandarin um it doesn't sound that different and it can be hard to hear ul versus er and because they're both uh kind of sounds so you will hear people who speak mandarin and english as a second language mixing those up um which is kind of stereotypical like if you're going to do a Chinese accent and be racist about it you're going to flip those around mm. but it comes from their learning history of I as an English speaker learned to differentiate those um, and they didn't and they still could with more practice but it's really fresh for them you know mm. a couple years being fresh in language uh, versus a lifetime so it can, I don't know, like we're all given the same tools, but you got to sharpen that sword um, or else you won't be able to do it. Well, and then too, and I tend to frame a lot of my thinking in complex systems or complexity theory. So, and this is a perfect example of what we have here. We have the one of the articles i read they call it dual patterning where we have the cultural bounds that dictate the extent to which language will form and then we also have the inherent binding of where that culture originated too so like you mentioned earlier if you don't have palm trees in your natural environment and your family, your ethnicity has been in that same spot for generations, you're not going to have a word for that because you don't experience it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then as you develop, once you do move out, say you branch out and you start experiencing those things, you operate within your cultural inheritance to develop a new word to fit into that language. It's still bounded by that cultural parameter too. Yeah. It's like the uh, like 
the French word for potato is like ground apple or something. Mm-hmm. And it's like they're going off of what they know when they came up with the word for potato. An apple, something you eat, comes from the ground. And it was like you obviously from that can infer they had apples and they had ground before they ever met the potato. Yeah. So you can see kind of the etymology and the evolution of you know, language through what you come up with when you meet something new. So Which, let me let me ask you this then. Using your operative conditioning and behaviorist framework. What was the first classification of words? Verbs or nouns? So this is a tough one because the words that I would use to classify language are manned, tact, echoic, and interverbal. Um, all These are words that Skinner just made up to label the ideas that he had. And so a manned, like the root word of that is like command or demand. Mm-hmm. So when you manned, you're asking for something. Uh, tacting is labeling. So when you tact, you are giving it a name. Echoic is you're echoing, you're repeating what someone said, repeating what someone said, even yourself. And an introverbal is your response to someone else's verbal behavior, like answering questions, nodding and saying, hmm, like those things are introverbals. And that's a very high level skill. Um, But the first word that humans came up with was probably a man asking for something. Um, So it could have been water and that person was requesting water or asking for water. It could have been run. That person was asking to run, um, requesting that someone else run. So I think very strongly that it was someone, it was not two people coming together and saying, let's call this an apple. That the first person to come up with the word did it because they wanted that thing. Um, And it was not an act of people, let's simplify our lives and come up with a name for this so that we can communicate better. But it was an act of, I need this and I need someone to know that I need this. So it could have been a verb. Um, The only one that I could think of, like when I take myself back to very, very prehistoric, like early humans, I could see run, I could see water, I could see food as kind of your first three options of what the first word was that people came up with. But I'm fairly certain it wasn't just a label to just say, let's call this a tree. And they moved on with their lives and just started labeling everything. Uh, Because the reason I think that is the first word that babies say is usually a man asking for something. Um, So it would follow that the first word that any human ever said was also a man. But don't those mans refer to a label? Yes. Yeah. You could do, you could have, uh, 
water as a man. If I say water, I want my water. I'm going to take a drink. Um, if you, if I look at my water bottle and I say water, then I'm same word, different operant. Uh, so that's attacked. Um, if you say water and then I say water, that's echoic. If I read water um, and I say the word water because I read it, that's a type of echoic. And uh, if you ask me what my favorite drink is, I could say water and that's an interverbal. Uh, so yes, the same word could function as all of those, but the reason that someone is saying it kind of is gives it the classification rather than what that word is referring to. Okay, that's fair. We'll come back to motivations and point of origin for reference because I, I have a decent amount to say about words referring to other things. Um, postmodernist Jacques Derrida gave me a lot of ammunition for that. But let's return to, I think. Well, do you think I, it was a label, the first it, word? If, if I had to place a wager on it, I think it was a label. Because, right, so you, you bring it up a good point that a toddler's first word is a manned. They're Usually. asking for, demanding, searching for something along those lines. And that's why I, I brought up earlier that those man's command could be for something, a label. If we, right, you watch how toddlers that don't have verbal language yet, they're still in... And this is where I see that we have the biological primer for being communicative because they don't have verbal language, but they still have body language. They get right? their point across. Dude, nothing, nothing enraptured me more in the toddler stage than how fluid and plastic language is. If you think that language isn't fluid and plastic, go hang out with a two-year-old for two hours. By the end of the two hours, you guys will understand each other. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not linguistically, but you guys can understand each other. And most of how, most of how pre-language individuals operate is by gesturing. They might have grunts and things like that to add emphasis to stuff, but it's primarily gesturing. Well, what are they gesturing at? Maybe, you know, there might be motivations behind it. I need to get over there. I need to run from this predator or whatever, but there's still that fundamental label as the origin of, right? They are trying, trying to draw the other's attention to something. Mm -hmm. And it is through that um, direction of attention. I think that those first words started being applied as labels with which to ease that process. It does make sense that way. Um, I, yeah, maybe the first word was look. Come on. Look. Well, and, and, and see, that's, that's interesting because that's an action, not necessarily mm -hmm. a label. It is a label, but it's a label of doing something. Yeah. Well, it's a man because you're requesting that this happen. Um, look. That would be a really, 
Oh, I like that one now. That was not on my list of what I think the first words could have been, uh, but now it definitely is because what you said makes sense that there was a gap in, or maybe a delay. It took too long to get on the same page. So to streamline that process, we came up with something quicker, which is a, ah, ooh, very fast. Like that's why most people use verbal, vocal verbal language is because it is a great method to communicate. Um, and it's considered like the best method and then everything else, like including ASL is like sub part of that um, and considered. I, I would never say that ASL is not on the same level as vocal verbal behavior because it's equally fast, um, possibly faster to get the same point across. Um, but it is not as, uh, it requires you to look so there's one more step to that, that vocal verbal language uh, doesn't need. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I had a thought, let me, let me see if I can pull it back. Oh, so the intention for a first word might've been a man. Look at that, get me this, I need this, we need fire. The evolution of that, it sounds like from that ori origination point onwards is echoing. Right, because once I draw your attention to something, to maintain that efficiency of drawing your attention to it again, or for you to draw my attention to it, if like the roles are reversed, what are you going to do? Or you're going to mimic how the first person was gesturing towards that, which means you would now mimic how they're vocally gesturing towards that. And then you're going to yeah. build your, your, build your linguistic structures off of that. I think you could see that process today. I'm imagining like I go to a German grocery store and I see a type of fruit I've never seen before. And I call the German lady over and I like point and in English, I say, what is that? And she looks at me and she says like anana and i go anana and she goes anana and then i go anana so we've said the same word four times but she tacted it she labeled it i echoed it then i tacted it and i labeled it correctly so the first anana i said was an echoic trying it out getting her approval that was right and then me saying it for real as a tact and i imagine that happens all the time um, and I imagine a very similar sort of back and forth of, did I hear that right? Did I say that right? Happened. Uh, I mean, why wouldn't it happen that same way? Especially when there's no rules, right? Going back before standardized language, right? even, even just reading historical documents from colonial America in the 1650s, it is twice as difficult, not because their handwriting was so sloppy, which it was, but because there's no standardized English. So mm -hmm. they spelled things however they thought it was supposed to be spelled. I love you can that. have the you can have the same person. One of the one of the primary focal points of my master's thesis was a guy named Herman Husband. Um, and the verdict is still out on whether it was Herman or her man, because he spelled it both ways in his writings, and whether it was husband or husbands, because he spelled it both ways 
sporadically throughout his writings. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like I can go back in 1771 and ask him, hey, yo, Herman, <laughs> how was it? Yeah. Well, he might even, like, if you ask him which way is the right way, even that might be a foreign concept. Like, what do you mean the right way? Like, you know what mm-hmm. I said. Why does it matter? Because I used to teach kids with dyslexia uh, how to read and spell and stuff. And if we could get to a point where it was close, but not correct, like, I spent a lot of time building up that self-confidence. Like, listen, you did your job. They can read it. You didn't spell it right, but all of the sounds are in the right order and they're there. So like if I spell bread, B-R-E-D, but I mean the food bread, but in the context of the sentence, you know, it's not bread like a dog, um, then you're good. You did it. Mm -hmm. And that's been my philosophy just with people with learning disabilities. Like my experience is, you know, if your brain's not going to do it, but you get pretty close, that's their problem if they want you to be right. So it may be a, a newer concept that you have to be correct. You have to learn it one way, a certain way, because, you know, one in five people have dyslexia. It's extremely common. So uh, the fact that we put them to this standard of being perfect, having it memorized is um, possibly not uh, what we were doing a hundred years ago. Well, and that's a conversation that that we can have too, where, because we need standards, we need a starting point. We need some sort of mutual footing with which to orient and initiate all of our social engagements Mm -hmm. to, to, to orient and initiate our interactions with the world. However, by definition, standards are restrictive and oppressive. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that is the whole point of standards. Um, and in, in fact, we could argue that that is the whole point of language is to be exclusionary. The reason I can say the word cat and you and I instantly have at least overlapping images in our head of what we're talking about is because we also at the same time have an understanding of all the things that that word does not refer to, which helps mm-hmm. clarify what it is, right? It, it, it bounds and binds whatever it is that we're referring to, which we have to, because if I say tree, right, you have to have some idea of orienting what I'm referencing, mm-hmm. you know? But also at the same time, right, it, it is the postmodernists are correct in this. This is their kernel of truth there, that by definition, it is exclusionary, right? By definition, applying a label to something, even something simple as drink, right? It, by definition, excludes all of the things that aren't in that. Now, where the postmodernists would take this too far or at least a postmodern ideology would take this too far, is all things exclusionary and oppressive need to be dismantled, mm. right? Which, which leaves us in just that quagmire of infinite subjectivity with zero way to orient ourselves towards anything mutual, right? Because yeah. I mean, this is... Well- not, not to, let me just say this piece and, and then I want to hear your thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Um, not to get too 
political too quickly because I don't want this to be a political channel or a conversation, but this is the issue with, with all liberation theologies, regardless of flavor or origin. Um, to have a worldview based on liberating yourself from oppressive boundaries ignores the fact that oppressive boundaries are baked into the nature of reality. No matter how much I want to envision myself as a hot air balloon, gravity is going to keep me on my feet on the ground. No matter how much I want to be liberated from, no matter how much I want to have total freedom within a system, I still have to eat that bounds the freedom with which I, I still have to sleep. I still have biological needs that I have to attend to whether I want to or not, which by definition is oppressive, but there's no, what's the alternative? You know, <laughs> if you want total freedom from an oppressive system, the, the only, and I'm not advocating for this in any capacity, so nobody take this out of context, but the only way to really be oppressed from, to be free from an oppressive system is death. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it comes from a very, like, egocentric view of the world, because humans are social creatures, we exist as a species because we influence each other, and you don't always get to be the one influencing you are influenced back by other people and that's how it's supposed to be. If you take a person and put them in solitary confinement, they will go insane. They Mm -hmm. will not survive. Um, We are not supposed to be that way. And it can be uncomfortable to be influenced by other people and to be aware of it, but it is a non-negotiable part of our species as animals. It would be like if the lion in the pride is like, I don't want to be with y'all. I'm going to go do my own thing. You guys are oppressive. Like, I hate this pecking order. I want to eat first. That lion goes off and dies because it needs its group. And if you're human, the same thing happens. You go off to the woods because you don't like waiting in line for food and you don't think you should wear the clothes that people ask you to wear. You go off into the woods and you die alone. And that's what happened to everyone who thought that way, which is why most people are very open to other people's opinions and um, following those social rules. Like we walk into a restaurant and we see what other people are doing and copy them. And it's not as, uh, you know, it's very quick. You might not even be aware that you're doing it, but you can find the end of a line in a grocery store pretty easily by just looking at what other people are doing. And we are meant to do that. And the fact that it inconveniences you is um, very selfish to view it that way. Yeah. And I think, and we've had this conversation before, not on the podcast, but before about internal locus of control versus external locus of control. I think Mm -hmm. that plays in too, right? It might not even be a selfish disposition per se, but just to have the, to have the perspective that you're like 
Heidegger would say that thrownness, right? We're thrown into a world. We don't get to choose our parents. We don't get to choose our culture. We don't get to choose the region that we're raised in, right? Um, and to, to be thrust up into a system like that makes it, generates within a lot of people this idea that there's nothing within their control that can make those things better or that can change it to their particular ideal outcome, right? Therefore, that system, those conditions, whatever they, they have that thrownness of being thrust into is, because it is by definition, um, a binding and oppressive force. But the rub is that, just, just like you said, it is necessary. Even eat, it, it's necessary biologically, right? Because uh, like you alluded to, and I'm including psychology with, with this biological piece, that there, there's a reason we have the stereotype of the crazy hermit that lives alone in the woods, mm-hmm. right? They're crazy because they don't have their normal psychosocial interactions with which to regulate themselves. But also, too, it's essential in, in the sense of having heuristics, having that starting point with which to engage with the world. If we mm-hmm. don't have a starting point, right, you can't engage with the world. If you can't engage with the world, you die. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I think that's, that's just that's the way the cookie crumbles, people. Yeah. And whether or not it should be that way, it is that way. And maybe in a thousand years, I mean, not even because how fast does evolution take place? If human beings last a million years, we might see a change in, you know, the way that our evolutionary social creatureness uh, occurs. But it's not happening this year or next year or before any of us die. So we're stuck with what we have. Just like we were talking about earlier with with the particulars of a system being restricted and bound by the parameters of that system, right? We exist in a particular embodiment, which means the nature of our experience, while there's lots of wiggle room and lots of room for difference and variation, that experience, the totality of it is still bounded by our embodiment. And there's no escaping that. If we, if we do escape that, then by definition, we're not having a human experience anymore because we're not a, an embodied human being. I also do, part of the rub with talking about language is that there are people who, what am I trying to say? Like, it's an integral part of being a human, but there are people born without the ability to acquire language because of their autism or their brain damage or something that happened genetically. And it is, you know, those are humans that happens. That's part of our evolution. We have, those traits haven't died out in all of our evolution. They're still here. So there is a, that's a something because um, it's a, it's a variation that nature keeps giving us for a reason. So there is, I don't know, I guess I just want to say it's tough to talk about language when you know that this is something that humans do. It's part of our evolution, but there's always an exception. Not every human. Um, 
And then there are people like Skinner would say everyone can learn language no matter what's happened. Um, and this is kind of proven true. I don't know if you've seen um, the dog called Bunny, who she's part of a study now, but she's a sheepadoodle, like kind of a big, curly, cute dog. Mm-hmm. And her owner has trained her to use a button board, and each button has a recorded word. And the owner has trained her to press these buttons, string them together in sentences. Um, there's question, uh, there's excitement. She has named her parents there. Like she can say like mom and dad. Um, she can ask for food with this button board. And there's the, I mean, what they think they're doing, what these dog parents think they're doing is discovering that dogs have the same power to acquire language as humans have. That's not what's happened. <laughs> what's happened is they have done very impressive operant conditioning to train this dog to speak in sentences using uh, an assistive technology. And it is like not, it is highly, highly impressive uh, conditioning that they've done. This dog is not using language. It can't no. use language. It's not using English. <laughs> but they the, think that that's what they're doing. Because initial response is at what point does rote repetition turn into manipulated cognition mm-hmm. or or i guess a, a better way it would be linguistic cognition Right, just because you've trained the dog that when they press this button, they get water or they press that button, they get treat. And then there's a verbal command that's laid over the top of that. That doesn't necessarily mean that that dog is using linguistic cognition. They're using... I mean, it's definitely not. Dogs can't do that. <laughs> yeah. They are communicative, which is, why we, which is why we can do that overlap. A, they are conditionable because they're communicative. Um, right. I was going to say they're very sensitive to our reactions, yeah. which is why and, they're easy to train. And B, they do have that language element, but it's nonverbal. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you can use the, the different pitches of whines and howls as rough indicators, but for the most part, the primary primary mode of language for most mammals is nonverbal. Right, so you watch you watch two dogs in the backyard before they start playing, and it might be really quick, but one of them does what's called the play bow. That's why when like you're standing in your living room and you go, your dog starts freaking out because that's what you've just simulated. You just simulated the play bow. If you watch them really quickly, the dog initiating play will do that dip, and then crazy, and that mm-hmm. lets the other dog know that it's not an act of domination. It's not an act of reestablishing the pecking order. It's fun. Yeah. Now, and again, we, we can go back to at what point that, that cocktail of communicative ability in rote repetition turns into linguistic cognition. 
yeah i don't what, i don't i don't i don't have an answer for that but that that's just naturally that's where that's the next spot that my mind goes to what skinner would say is it never does and it like my extremely complex use of language if you had every data point of my life and you were able to graph that you would know my verbal abilities based on what i've experienced and that at no point does a word that you learn or a language or phrase or the way that I communicate, my cadence, my tone, every part of that has been at some point trained um, or practiced or I tried it and I got a good reaction. So I did it again um, with the, like, I couldn't change my voice too much, but you know, your accent, the way that you talk, like I could have a really high voice and, but you know, I have a more neutral one. I, in my opinion, it's neutral. I could talk a little bit lower and be a little bit more masculine. All of that is within my vocal ability, but I've chosen this one. And if you had every data point of my life, you could predict this is how she will talk. Um, this is the volume. This is the cadence. This is the speed. And I think it, if you had a supercomputer that could do that, it would be accurate every time if it was measurable. Um, and it's, it's something fun to think about because does it just come from something outside of the environment? In my opinion, probably not. Um, it's always going to come back to, I was trained to do this and trained being a, a very rough term for it. But over my life, this is what's happened because of the consequences of that I've been experiencing. Yeah, there's, there is truth there. I don't know the extent of how much, but there, there, there is truth there. And I agree with most of what you said. Um, and I agree with most of Skinner's conclusions at least in methodology for how things are acquired, because we, we do know that we, um, we adapt and adopt ourselves to the social conditions we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. Part of that is a survival reflex. If you're walking to a biker bar, you're not going to act a certain type of way because you know that it's dangerous, vice mm -hmm. versa. Um, Right. And, and it is the input from those social mores and folkways. It is the social signals that our peers give us that let us know, like, how, do, how does a high schooler determine something's cool? Well, it's based on how many other people they've engaged with that have said that it's cool. Right? And that's, the, that's as deep as it goes for them. The important thing is, too, that these connections and these trainings can happen when you're aware of them. But they can also happen when you're not aware. And there's a lot of studies and especially like social research that prove that you do not have to be aware that you're being conditioned in order to be conditioned. Um, I can train someone to speak higher and have a higher tone of voice if every time you speak at a slightly higher tone um, or pitch, I think if you speak at a slightly higher pitch, I lean in and I nod a little bit more, I give you that feedback you're going to speak to me with a higher tone, whether or not you're cognizant that I'm training that out of you. And that, 
yeah, so that's proven that you can train someone without them mm-hmm. knowing. So you're not, you're not always aware that this is how you were trained, um, which is pretty helpful for my argument because most people would say they weren't. This is just how I do it. This is how I prefer to do it. Um, but if you're taking the behaviorist perspective, you would say, well, you prefer to do that because um, of you were trained to do it that way. Yeah, where I'm struggling to buy, and I've always, this is what's always turned me off about Skinner, is, is because I do view that while mostly complete, his perspective is reductionist. Mm-hmm. Now You're not alone in that. He's, he's polarizing. Well, I've, I've yet to decide, because this kind of tiptoes down the free will debate, which we will have to do for a different episode because there's just too much That's to so say good. there. But yeah. it, it, it makes, I haven't decided if I adhere to the human agency in the free will piece that Skinner leaves out because I want there to be that piece there. Mm-hmm. Or if it's because I have a, a another justifiable reason to be at odds with that. I, I haven't worked that out yet. But I do know that, like, for instance, if everything about a person, every measurable metric that you have is conditioned, mm-hmm. operatively conditioned, either through internal conversations, mm-hmm. right, in my head thinking, man, my throat's kind of parched. I need to go get some water. And then that spurs the behavior to go get water, which could spur the creation of the linguistics needed to tell someone else that I'm thirsty and I need to take a break and go get some water. Um, then where does intuition come from? Where does insight and in, in revelatory knowledge come from? The, my problem with the research on insight is that they did a lot of it with monkeys and then said only humans can show insight in higher primates. And by showing it in monkeys, you're really undermining your point that this is a human thing. Um, so there's an amazing study where they observed insight in chimpanzees um, because they tied bananas to the ceiling and they had a box in the room and they let the monkey in and the monkey really wanted the bananas, couldn't get it, wasn't tall enough, couldn't jump that high. And he looked around the room and he looked at the box, he looked at the bananas, he looked at the box again, and then he tried something new. And they've raised this monkey from birth. They knew he didn't have this skill. He had never showed it before. He had never been trained to do it. He's never seen anyone else do it. He came up with it on his own and he showed a very human insight to doing it. Um, And so this was a great sort of win in the cognitive psychologist category saying insight is a human phenomenon. But to me, you did it with a monkey. It's an animal phenomenon. But anyways, there was a follow-up study with the exact same thing, but with pigeons, which definitely don't have insight. They have brains the size of a fingernail. uh, And they did the same thing, put the pigeon in the box. The pigeon looked at the box. It looked at the ball that it wanted to peck. It looked at the box again. It used its beak to peck 
the box, then it hopped on the box, and then it got the ball that it wanted. And the exact same thing trained in a pigeon. And the idea was that you say this is insight, I say this is operant behavior still. And it's the most insane. I think it's insane. The videos of the monkey doing it and the pigeon doing it, it really looks like the pigeon is thinking and then has an idea. And it's obviously not, it's a pigeon, but there are these things that you and I see as, oh, that was special. That was insight, but it might not be, (laughs) it might just be how you were trained still. Okay. Um, is there a issue with definitions then or reframing this the right way? Because you're describing novel behavior mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's what I mean by insight. So I might, might, might be using the wrong term on my end. Um, okay. I don't really want to use intuition either because I think much of our intuitions or many of our intuitions are informed by our unconscious reading of our social mores and folkways, right? Why did you, how did the bank teller just have the clairvoyant image that the bank was going to be robbed? Well, they unconsciously picked up on either, you know, a, 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 sensory chemical change in the environment, people's body language shifted in those micro expressions and they just intuitively picked up on it, right? There's, so there is, there's some um, input coming into the system there with, with intuition that can make it a little wonky. But yeah, um, what about revelatory? And, and I'm defaulting to insight again. Let's just use insight as, as a placeholder term. Until I can, I can think of the better one. Um, revelatory experiences. So there's a couple of different ways we can, we can chart this one out. Religious experiences. You go to a place, you sit down, everything else is normal. And then all of a sudden, bah, you get hit with that. And all of a sudden you have, to some degree, a more enlightened framework, worldview, schema, however it is you want to frame that. Another way that I'm thinking about this is overcoming writer's block, right? So, and, and, and I, know, I know you have experience with this because you have two degrees as well, most of which required a lot of reading and writing to some degree, <laughs> right? Um, right, so you, you're saying, and I, I explain this to my students a lot that a blank page is infinite possibility. That's what writer's block is. It's choice paralysis. Mm -hmm. There's literally an infinite amount of things that you can say in an infinite amount of directions that you could go on a blank page. That's why the last paragraph or two of a paper is the easiest to write because we're talking about the, the systems binding the operation within that system as you get to the end of that paper, right, you've laid down all of those foundational bricks to where the options with which it can go are so narrowed that it writes itself. Mm-hmm. Now, scroll back though, you're sitting there, you're staring at the blank page. 
having writer's block, nothing's popping up. And all of a sudden you get that spark of insight and it flows. Nothing's necessarily changed in your environment. Nothing's necessarily conditioned you at least short term, at least locally to have that spark of insight, but your cognition fires in such a way as to reveal to you seemingly internal pre-existing knowledge that you didn't have access to before. Mm -hmm. That you can see that phenomenon on an EEG reading uh, your brain waves going from kind of flatlined to active when you mm-hmm. have an idea. Um, it is observable. Um, and so I say that to say like, you know, behaviors only want to deal with observable stuff that is observable to us today. We can see that happen. So it must fit in with behaviorism <laughs> somehow. Um, Only if you my, have confirmation bias. Right. Um, so I can observe that. And the way I would answer that, like, why does that happen is um, there's a stimulus within your own thoughts that um, you may or may not be aware of that uh, sparks the next idea. And there is uh, patterns of reinforcement that you can do um, to train novel behavior. They've done this in dolphins where they give a signal and the dolphins have to do a series of tricks they've never done before. Um, And this is something we do um, with people with autism because specifically for conversations, it can be very like, you know, they have very preferred topics, special interests that they like to talk about. And so doing this set of reinforcement can uh, reinforce having new conversations, um, which can be a little bit scary if you have autism and you like things a certain way, you like conversations to go a certain way. So this is, uh, it's something that people are able to do. If you ask me to train someone to have novel ideas right now i would say i'm not competent enough to do that but i mean they're doing it with with dolphins and sea world right now so it can be done um you can prove that this occurred because of training as well um but with humans we're extremely complicated beings and our learning history is extremely complicated as well which is why our complex behavior appears to come out of nowhere. But if I had a strong enough computer and I had enough data points, I could predict that you would overcome this writer's block in this way. And I don't know if I fully believe that, but that would be the answer I would give. And the reason that I don't fully buy into that is because they're it's extremely theoretical (laughs) like well if I can measure it then I could tell you what happened but I don't know what's more likely um like this was a spark from God or was it something from the environment I don't know what makes more sense 
two things. Well, I, I, yeah, two things. Well, I guess that's another topic for another episode. Qualia of God, right? <laughs> we can write that one down. Um, but no, t- two things. So firstly, we know at least the human body has... We are a whole that's greater than the sum of our parts. And by that, I mean we have, mm-hmm. we have potential. We have inherent knowledge, even if it's just genetic knowledge, that isn't unlocked or accessible until placed in certain situations. So here's an example. We know, and it's been confirmed, that when placed in novel environments, the human body starts synthesizing proteins that it's never synthesized before. Right? It's it you do. That's why when you can um you need to clear your head or you get writer's block. You go to Starbucks and you get a cup of coffee and all of a sudden you're thinking differently because you're having a physiological reaction to that novel environment. Right? Um I don't know which side of the argument that suggests yet. Right. So I, I think, I think I'm kind of on the fence about it. Like you, I don't want to be dull and drab and be like, everything boils down to numbers, blah, 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 blah. It's everything's predictable because if everything's predictable and we are, the totality of our experience is just the sum of our conditioning, then what's the point? Yeah. Right. It would imply that there is no free will if I can put you in a computer and predict your next move exactly. It would also imply that evil people aren't evil, that people don't Mm -hmm. make bad decisions. There is no morality. There's no such thing as good or bad. There is no such thing as human agency. If I'm a dick, it's because I was conditioned to be a dick. If I'm the, if I'm, you know, the Pope, it's because I've been conditioned to be the Pope. There's no inherent value to anybody that way, or even the potential for inherent value. Um, but the other the other thing I was going to say too, um, if all of our if all of our linguistic abilities, and then by extension our psychological capabilities, are purely the results of conditioning, measurable outcomes, no such thing as transcendence or revelatory or insight or anything like that. Where does consciousness fit? Because the whole idea of consciousness is at odds with that purely reductionist framework. What, I mean, it's a tough question because does my dog have consciousness? Because I see a lot of things that would imply that he does. He has dreams. Um, he gets scared. Uh, he gets happy. He has favorite things. And he has least favorite things. He doesn't like the rain. He's afraid of the buses when they drive by. All of this feels like he's a conscious being as well. But when... A, what a lot of people are resistant to is to put us on the same level as animals in that way. 
So they would say, no, dogs don't have consciousness, only humans do. And I don't see why a dog having consciousness takes away from humans are special. I'm not sure that humans are special. I think we're animals. Well, and here's the thing too. Um, Why does it have to be all or nothing? Right. Yeah. It, it's it, you're either lights on consciousness or not. And, and I'm going to use my lighting as an example, right? Maybe that's a dog's consciousness. And this is a human's consciousness, right? Some sort of sliding scale. Maybe mm-hmm. our consciousness is a raging inferno because we are complex creatures and we're 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 and yeah, I think we're good. That was a quick fix. Okay. But no, like I was just doing with, with my light um, dimming and then brightening back up, right? Why can't it be a sliding scale? I would argue that I would argue that most complex organisms have some flicker of consciousness. Okay. To what degree? I don't know to what complexity i don't know obviously human beings we tend to have near the top of the scale of complex consciousness depending on how you look at it right because octopi they 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 kind of like fit their own little niche right there's there's kind of a half joke that like octopi are aliens because they are so unique and individual in the animal kingdom and they do seem to have cognitive abilities that maybe don't rival human beings but are next on the list right yeah there's you you hear all those anecdotal stories of the, the octopus at the aquarium that like mapped the time for the guard changes Mm-hmm. And so we it get out of eat the crabs. Yeah, they'd scuttle across the hall to eat the crabs and come back, and no one was the wiser until they checked the cameras, right? Um, yeah. But you know, I, I don't feel it. It has to be an all or nothing thing. And let's see if I have it here. Um. Oh, where's it at? Here's it. Here it is. So there's a guy, um, Dr. Donald Hoffman, who wrote a book. He works out at. UCLA, I believe. And he put together a team of mathematicians. So his, his technical title, he is a neurophysicist, which just sounds terrifying. Um, yeah. But he, he put together a team of mathematicians because his big thing was the rational atheists, the BF Skinners of the world would say that we have all of this material. The objective world is real, right? It has to be measurable in order for it to be true, real, used for rigorous research, whatever. And that, that's where that reductionist kick comes in, right? We're all just material beings. And you arrange the material in the right way, and all of a sudden it's haunted and, and can think. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that framework involves two assumptions. It involves an assumption that there is an objective reality, that there is material with which to organize, and that out of a, the right structure, that material causes 
consciousness. What Donald Hoffman and his team did is they reversed the order. So they put together, and I'm in no way, shape, or form qualified to read their equations and to tell whether they're accurate or not, but I've read his book. <laughs> and he suggests that they have mathematical proofs, proofs in the mathematical sense, right? Not mm -hmm. necessarily proofs as in like um, philosophical truth or anything like that. That if you grant us the assumption of consciousness as existing, you can do the math to theoretically prove objective reality. So at the very least, you know, per Occam's razor principle, it's the most explanatory value with the least amount of assumptions. You take one of those two core assumptions out. And mm -hmm. I, think it's re I think it's really interesting that way because A, it allows for that model of like varying degrees of depth of consciousness. B, it leaves room for higher order beings, God, if you want to call it that, whatever, because we don't know. C, um, most non-Western traditions would agree to some fundamental level, either through tradition or revelatory insight, that we have consciousness and the world arises out of that. Right. So what, how, how, how Donald Hoffman describes it is that we have the fundamental, if you dig down to bedrock in the nature of reality, the fundamental building block of reality is conscious experience and conscious interaction. Right. And it is the, the sea or the web of all of those conscious entities having experiences that manifest material reality out of. Right. So if you want to think about it in this way, we are all operating in reality with a VR headset on. So what I'm looking at, that material is rendered in a way because of my conscious experience. Not necessarily okay. saying that I'm the creator of it, but we don't know what's out. It's the same way. I'm looking at my computer screen right now. Be, the way that I can understand what my computer is doing is because I have that interface in front of me that takes all of the um, ionization of gates and capacitors and resistors and chips and hardware that I cannot look at and interact with and gives me an interface with which to interact with them. Right. Mm -hmm. if, we, if we were to peel back everything and look at the fundamental structure of reality, we wouldn't know what to do with it partly because our consciousness is embodied, right? And we, yeah. do, we, we have this interface that we use. Um, that reminds me of those scenes in the Matrix where they're looking at the green numbers falling yeah. and they can see what it means. But if you haven't been trained to do that, mm -hmm. it just looks like numbers. Right. So it, it's, it's not suggesting that if I look away, my computer doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It does. It's just not rendered as a computer. We don't know what it is. No one knows what it is, right? It, it kind of goes back to that whole, if I hermetically seal off a room without going into and interacting with that room, can you prove to me that something exists in there? Mm -hmm. And the answer is we can't. That doesn't mean something doesn't exist. It just means that we can't prove one way or the other until we interact with it. 
I think, yeah, all of that makes sense to me, especially because when I found out that like the retina is processing information, it's based, the retina is basically a part of our brain. It is brain tissue and it processes information and then sends that information through your octave nerve to your brain to get processed some more. But at no point along the stage are we getting raw data. It is hitting our retina and immediately being converted, um, which is why our vision is so good. We've taken a bit of our brain and placed it at the back of this organ that lets us view a very complex world in a very complex way, um, allegedly. It may be much more complicated than we are able to see actually we know it is because I can't see the cells that make up my hand, but I know they're there. I can't see the atoms that make up my laptop, but they are there. So we have a, a baseline level of tools with which to interact with the world. And as humans, we have created additional tools to interact with the world um, on a such, smaller level such as and a bigger language. level. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, language is a tool. It's the same as a telescope. Like, mm -hmm. this is how we interact with what's going on. Let me, and, let me uh, piggyback off of that because I, and you set me up perfectly for why I find um, Donald Hoffman so convincing. Because the core methodology that he used with which to justify his findings is um, evolutionary psychology and then game theory. So every mathematical equation that he and his crew put together and inputted into the, the game theory engine that they have, every single one of them suggested that the participants, right? And so by participants, we mean um, simulations within their, their game theory thing. Um, every player in their game that was evolved to see reality authentically had lower fitness points. We're not, it, his conclusion from that is, and I find it very convincing, is that we are not evolutionarily designed to see reality as it is. Doing so is crippling and it actually lowers our success rates in interacting with the world. Rather, uh, a little bit rather of ignorance what, is bliss. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe not ignorance is bliss, but just in the simple fact that we have evolved to interact with the world in the most predictably accurate way possible in the shortest amount of time possible, which is why we've evolved heuristics, our eyes, ears, nose, language, tactile experiences. They're all heuristics. They all get filtered. Right. And you bringing up the atoms thing is, is, is what prompted me for that. We're not evolved to see a computer or a light or a microphone. We're evolved to see density. If I throw my hand through the air, I'm hitting atoms and I can lightly feel it, but it's not threatening. So I can't see it. Mm. If I throw my hand through a desk, it's going to break my hand among other things because the atoms are more closely packed. It, it has more impact literally and metaphorically on how I navigate through the world. So that's why uh, we see that structure. That's information we need to know to yeah. live. So we are able to get that information and everything else 
we can forget about. Now, it's, it's the same fundamental building blocks, but we're not evolved to see air particles because we don't need to, right? Mm-hmm. Part of that conscious embodiment. Um, so, and, and so like, like you were saying earlier about the computer and the atoms and things like that, language as the tool, here's where things get really, 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 really fun. What is this? A mug. Mug, cup, right? What part of this holds the most mug essence? Mm. The is silhouette a choice? You could say abstract conceptualization, and and I would accept yeah. that. But no, I, I did the this handle with, um, plus the cup. Plus well, the ceramicness of it. I did this experiment. I, I do it a lot with my students. I ask them, like, what is a desk? And they say, oh, it's a table, blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, what is that? Um, I did this with the, the kids a couple weeks ago at dinner. Like, you know, point to the part of the cup that is most cup or has the most essence of cup in it. And it confuses mm-hmm. them because and this is where Plato's theory of forms comes into play. that cup that mug is an embodiment of multiple different layers of being all at the same time it's ceramic right but that's not what makes it a cup but it wouldn't be a cup if it wasn't embodied ceramic mm-hmm. it has a handle but that's not what makes it a cup it holds cars have things, handles right yeah. it, it holds things but that's not what makes it a cup Right. Part of what makes this a cup is the relationship between me and it. Because it is embodied in such a way that is graspable. Because I am embodied in such a way as to grasp something. The most essence, right, the word this cup has the most cup essence is in its abstract conceptualization. When you look at this, you don't see cup. You see drinking device. You see cheers, you see celebration. We see all of these embodied actions that we post hoc apply these material labels on top of, right? You don't look at it and see cup and then infer hydration device, waking up in the morning with coffee, right? We see those things first and then we infer that heuristic on top of it. Mm-hmm. Right. It has those stacked layers of all of those different forms, all of those different layers of being all at the same time. And I think tying back to, to, to language and things like that, I think that is what turns me off about adhering to Skinner wholly, because I think it eliminates the metaphysical reality of all of those additional abstract layers of being that all of us embody simultaneously. I, that's a great way to put it and a great metaphor. I think those categories that we come up with for things are Uh, annoyingly subjective. We would like to think cups are cups because they are cups. Um, A cup is anything that holds liquid. But if you 
put a cup upside down on the table, it no longer has the ability to hold liquid. Well, and also too, also too, the gas tank, the gas tank in my car holds liquid. Mm, Not a cup. Right. Right. So at, at that layer of analysis, right, whether something's a cup or not might be true or false, but it's irrespective of that capability. Yeah. Cups probably don't have wheels, but if you put four tiny wheels on something that looks like other cups I've seen, I'll probably still call it a cup, even though I know cups mm-hmm. don't have wheels. I'm, we're, we have to bend those categories and it can be very frustrating for people. It can be extremely frustrating for people with autism because this comes, you know, this is a cup. No, this isn't a cup. And we have to be flexible even when it is very annoying to do so um, because it's hard to have to change our category to fit something new. And it is much easier to just say, no, that's not a cup anymore. It was and now it's not. Um, And the accuracy may not matter depending on who you are. The ease of which you're able to make that categorization is usually more important. Um, Not for everyone, but for a lot of people. Yeah, and that that's two things on that, and then um, I think we can start thinking about wrapping this up because we're yeah. coming up on an easy hour and a half, if not close to two hours. Um, first of all, that helps explain why we have such a vast vocabulary in basically no matter what cultural language you look at, because there are increasingly it seems to be a near infinite amount of things that we could refer to Mm -hmm. right so therefore we need a near infinite amount of words to revert to those specific things um right should blue cups have a different name than green cups yeah bups Um, and gups like and this is something i get my students to think about when we're talking about synonyms what's another word for that um you know, because they're two different words, while there might be a lot of overlap, it's still two different things. Otherwise, it would just be the same word. Mm-hmm. Um, and a- another thing, right, y- you bring up a very accurate and, and true problem with heuristics is that they're not one-to-one because they can't be. That's the whole point is to take a high resolution image or experience and to lower the resolution. So that way it is transmittable. Right. Otherwise. It is something humans will try to do uh, at the expense of accuracy. Like it. um, Yeah. We will try to avoid changing our ideas about a certain thing uh, in order to maintain. It's just easier that way. It is, it takes more energy to change your mind than it does to keep the same mindset. Um, And we're always trying to conserve energy. Well, and and that's why um, another book I read, or I should say reread in preparation for this is Joseph Piper's abusive language, abuse of power. Mm -hmm. 
Um, he's a, a Catholic bishop, priest, something like that, wrote a response to the increasing new left movement in the 60s. Um, he recognized how figures such as Herbert Marcuse and the postmodernists were co-opting and redefining words to have dual meanings and things like that. Um, but I, I like it because it touches on a couple deep metaphysical things. First of all, the fact that in using language, I can transmit a piece of my experience to you, which will therefore alter your experience. Like we mentioned earlier about being bounded and embodied. Um, and if we assume that Donald Hoffman's right in that the objective world that we interact with is the result of underlying conscious experiences, then me transmitting an experience to you is literally changing your metaphysical reality. By, by altering your layers of meaning and all of those layers of being that you interact with, it, is, it might not make the table move on its own, but your understanding of what that is is going to be changed and therefore the way you interact with it is going to be changed and your interaction with reality is going to be changed, therefore changing your reality. I think this is a really good lesson to take away too because that will happen without your consent if someone is talking to you, it will change what you were just saying. It will have an influence. You can't just say, no, it won't. I'm not going to listen to you because it is going to have an impact, which is why it pays to be very careful about who you're around and who you interact with and you know how long you're on Twitter, how often, who you follow, um, who your friends are, what media you listen to because it is having that effect whether or not you think it is it can happen without you knowing um it can happen very slowly it can happen very quickly but it is happening um and it you know we're not as in control of our own actions as we might like to think and it does pay to change your environment to fit what you would like to embody. Like if I listen to just podcasts about baking, I'm going to know a lot about baking and not a lot about everything else. And if I have an aspiration to be something other than a baker, I need to change my environment to fit that. That's not going to come from within. You have to curate something, uh, deliberately curate something that is going to be safe and healthy and productive for you, which is work um and it can be a hard conversation like hey i can't hang out with you anymore you're about influence like you're racist about this you have these ideas like we can't be friends anymore and it yeah it pays to set those boundaries because it's gonna happen whether you want it to or not well it's also doubly difficult too because while we're sitting here talking about like being better and having um determining the valence with which we are growing out of a social experience or social environment or whatever, all of that's predicated on the fact that we are actually properly understanding what is a better position and a worse position. Right. Right. We, we could through that abusive language very well have those flipped through our misunderstandings. 
Yeah. Um, the other, the other thing I really like about Joseph Piper's work is um, the emergence piece. And we'll touch on this really quickly. I'll get your thoughts on it and, and then we can, we can wrap it up. Cause I think we've, we have dived into at least four or five different Olympic size pools of depth in, in this yeah. conversation. Um, yeah. What were you talking about? Language? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, that, that emergence piece, right? So we're sitting here having a conversation and it is through that manipulation of language that a shared reality emerges. And I know we've talked about this before a little bit. Um, Jock Pangsept was a either Austrian or, or Hungarian or Polish. Maybe he was Polish, um, but he was a psychologist that looked at juvenile rats and he paired them together for play bouts over and over and over. Right. So it was a, a longitudinal study too. Mm-hmm. That what happened was after the first play bout, all it took was a 10% weight increase or a 10% weight difference for the bigger rat to win 95% of the time. But after the first bout of play, it became dependent on the smaller rat to do the play bow and initiate that play. Because by definition, it's domination from the other rat, right? So we, we have that that pops up also too. If the big rat doesn't let the little rat win at least a third of the time, the little rat won't initiate play. So even in juvenile rats, we have this emergent morality. We have these, these two independent creatures that come together and it's through their being the parts that make the sum that something greater emerges, right? And we can see this with, with kids, right? Take a group of four-year-olds that have never met each other before, put them out on a playground and tell them to play tag. They all fundamentally know intuitively like the rough rules of tag. If you're it, you tag. If you're not it, you run, right? Mm-hmm. And so like they, they start playing. And then what happens? We start hearing modifications based on this emergent morality that pops up, right? So the kids are running around. One kid just has wicked fast reflexes. And every time he gets tagged, so pay attention. You'll start hearing things like no tag backs, right? Mm-hmm. As everyone else modifies the rules a little bit, not to take the pyramid and, and the, the competency hierarchy and flatten it completely, but to flatten it enough to where all participants are having some degree of fun again. Same way, if one kid's particularly fast on his feet, pay attention. You'll hear the group start doing things like, this is base now. You can't tag me while I'm here, right? To have that little island of hope for those kids that know they're not as fast so that way they can at least have some semblance of fun again. And it's that emergent morality um, that binds them together. The same way we have an emergent reality that occurs when we start speaking and having a conversation because I'm relaying a piece of my reality. You're co-opting it and assimilating it into your reality. And then what comes out afterwards is a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. That is interesting. And it makes me wonder, um, there's something, so operant behavior is one thing and rule governed behavior is another category that you can have. And it requires language to follow rules. Um, And it sounds like these rats have rule governed behavior. They know if you're the bigger rat, then, and that's kind of the structure of rules is if this, then Um, if you speed, then you will get a ticket. That's a rule. Mm -hmm. If I eat, then I will not 
feel hungry and nauseous. Um, if I smile at someone, they will smile back. And those are all based on verbal behavior. Most of those that I just mentioned are based on our experiences as well, and they can become a rule. But a lot of them, specifically ones for punishment, rules regarding punishment remain just rules because we avoid punishment and we never experience that. So if I kill someone, then I go to jail. I don't want to go to jail. I'm never going to experience that contingency. So I'm going to follow that rule um, to avoid that punishment. And what you just described with the children is rules and rule-governed behavior. Um, if I tag back, uh, then it's not going to count. So I'm not going to do it. Um, but rats don't have rule-governed behavior because they don't have language. So I would be curious to see how a... Yeah, because it does, it is the same thing, but I would categorize those as two different types of behavior. The rats are doing operant behavior. The children are doing rule-governed behavior, but it looks the exact same. Um, so it's interesting to me to try and make that make sense in my mind. Rats can follow rules, even though they could not tell you what the rule was. Yeah, well, I mean... I don't know if this implies that the rats are aware enough or if it was just Pangsep's observations that after repeated bouts of play, those rats that did not win a third of the time on, and they were smaller refused to initiate play. And that obviously wasn't communicated and transmitted to all the other rats. I think it was just an observation of the emergent quality of behavior. Yeah. Their behavior is lawful. It is following rules. Um, not necessarily. Not aware. Yeah. Not necessarily. I mean, obviously they do have to follow rules. If they don't eat, they die. Yeah. Right. Um, but th this isn't suggesting that they're creating a hierarchy of rules and adhering to it just because the big rat, just because there is that loose rule doesn't mean the big rat is going to let the small rat win a third of the time. Mm -hmm. Right. Maybe it just does what rats do and it just pins him every time because it's a rat. Poor little rat. Yeah. Right. But then what happens is the small rat, it doesn't have any incentive to play anymore because he knows he's not going to win. And so bouts of play don't continue to occur. Mm-hmm. For me, that's a lot to think about because, um, yeah, what you described is kind of the exact same behavior, um, but explaining why each one emerged, to me, they would have to have different reasons for emerging, but they probably not, don't. Not, they want to have cooperative not, play. Well, and uh, yeah, and see, that that's, that's the thing. Uh, I don't think there's... a fundamentally a big difference per se there's a living organism that through biological primers is pushed to desire social interaction and 
there are limits or boundaries to the type of social interaction that that living complex creature needs right so rats are social creatures not communicative per se like people are although there are mannerisms that we could loosely attribute as communication um but there is that that fundamental motivating motivational piece that it is those social interactions that either prompt continued bouts of play or prompt a cessation of play right incentive structures and all that jazz um both rats are incentivized to play not because the panks up put them together and said play in rat speak and they understood it but because they mm-hmm. had that biological primer right the same way that cats play as a way to trigger all of the firing of their muscles and neurons that help them hunt right it's, it's yeah instinctual. It's, it's yeah it's stimulating it's nice yeah um but yet when when the big rat wins every single time there's no incentive structure for the small rat to participate in that at least with that specific participant anymore mm-hmm. right it's it's whether and now you can whether it's a conscious thought is like oh hey that dude's a dick i don't want to play with him or it's just his physiological response of saying i'm not getting the rigorous stimulation that i need with which to develop my instincts to be successful in the world right the same way that if you take a cat that's a kitten that's prone to play and pounce on things and you make it unable to pounce it's probably not going to continue to try to engage in that behavior because it's not getting any physical reward. It's not helping it hunt anywhere in the future. The cat's Mm -hmm. not conscious of that, but I would reckon that that would be the result. Um, Same thing. The kids are playing because that's what kids do because a, they need that physical stimulation with which to spur healthy and accurate growth. Um, And B, they need that psychosocial stimulation with which to develop a grounded and stable psychological identity mirrored to their physiological form. So they're complete person, you know, however it is you want to frame that. Yeah. I had to define play for one of my supervisors recently and I came up with uh, it's age appropriate social interactions. Um, So you and I would not play would not be an age appropriate social interaction, but a child's age appropriate social interaction, we would label as play. Um, But it is just that it is how they interact with each other. Are we not playing right now? Technically this is an age appropriate social interaction. So you could say it is play, Um, but we wouldn't call it that because it's usually a term reserved for children. Because it seems but. silly. Because we have those social mores and folkways that suggest that if you use an immature term or a term that we would language that we would relegate to immature and unfinished peoples that haven't finished their development, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to make it sound like I'm alluding to children as incomplete people or anything like that. Um, yeah. It's their right. age-appropriate social interaction. And we all have something that is age-appropriate. And the other reason I like that definition is because it uh, gives the gravity of play, the importance of play to children. It is not just a fun activity that they do. It's not a reward. Oh, no. it's, it's something absolutely they essential. Need. 
Yeah, yeah it is. They and would not we, thrive without it. We see this in my classroom. I have my ninth graders this year because they have not had, this is my hypothesis for why things are so crazy right now, at least in the public school system, um, because they have not had their normal psychosocial play experiences. They haven't had a normal school year since the first half of seventh grade. Mm -hmm. Um, They have not been able to psychologically develop past that step because we don't skip steps in our psychological development. We complete the previous stage before we move up to the next layer. Um, So on any given day, most of the behaviors manifested in my classroom are those of first half of the year seventh graders. Mm -hmm. Right. Because they have not had those opportunities. That's why I do let a lot of play go farther than I should in my classroom for all intents and purposes. Um, Because I realized at the start of the year that if I'm the hard fisted tyrant, as soon as they start acting out and I say, sit down and shut up, that doesn't teach them why those behaviors are bad. If they start pissing off all their peers and they start getting that peer feedback, if they are allowed to play under the supportive umbrella to make sure that they're not going to walk away bleeding because the teacher's in the room, you know, (laughs) um, then they do, they learn those social boundaries a lot faster and more thoroughly. Yeah. And kind of what you're touching on is like rule govern versus contingency shaped behavior. You can tell them, follow this rule, you know, tell, don't tell a joke twice. Uh, Cause it's not funny the second time people won't laugh. You won't get the same reaction. You can tell them that, but if they actually experience that, that is always going to be stronger than just being told this is how it is. So you can sit someone down and read them a book on social interactions, but unless they do it, it is not going to be as strong or as accurate or as uh, they have to do it. It's yeah. got to be learned through experience. No, so you're very, that. yeah, you're, you're touching on the exact right thing. Like they didn't get that experience and they won't be able to move on until they get that experience. So it's got to happen. Yeah, which, which isn't scary. What scares me about it is within two or three years, if we look at statistics, some of these ninth grade maturity of seventh grade kids in my classroom will be having kids of their own. Mm -hmm. So that psychosocial deficiency is going to be transmitted to the next generation, which is going to be raised with the psychosocial deficiency. That will in turn, if we can't course correct, exponentially expand that to the following generation and the following generation. Like we're only talking about two or three generations before we as a general population don't have enough social maturity to interact as a society anymore. Yeah, I do. My opinion is that humans are extremely resilient and children are especially resilient. And, you know, we don't give teenagers enough credit for their resilience, but they can bounce back from a lot and come out perfectly okay. Um, And it's never too late to learn that integral skill. I have, you know, I've taught 17 year olds to say their first word and buy a textbook that shouldn't be possible. They're too old to have learned that. They're past so that point, but they always you're can. You're saying we can teach an old dog new tricks. Oh, yes. 
it's okay. uh it's not the best way to do it learn it when you're supposed to uh but if it, if you didn't learn it you can you can still get there yeah um we can we can do a a shopkeeping conversation after i stop recording but is there any last words or anything else you want to touch on this topic before we call it quits i i mean there's a lot there obviously <laughs> so it's never um of all of the theories that are out there i don't think there's one who's got it yet for anything um i think that the better our tools get the more complicated our computers get the more accurate our simulations get the closer we'll get but it is you know all the information that we have now and everything that we talked about today could be completely outdated in five years in 10 years so um it's nice to have these conversations within the context that this is what i think right now and i um would like to uh reserve the right to change my opinion as we get more information um as uh as we learn more well and i think um fundamentally that's what good academics do when presented with additional information, they adjust their conclusions accordingly. That doesn't mean that, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that the initial conclusion can be wrong, right? Maybe the additional information isn't sufficient enough with which to rewrite the whole schema. Yeah. Or maybe it's overwhelming. Either way, being able to have that epistemic humility to recognize that we should base our conclusions off of the most comprehensive and explanatory evidence that we have mm. regardless of personal opinion or biases or interests yeah isn't that a beautiful little undermining of like oh also if i'm wrong yeah hey here's this whatever here's this this two hour like upper undergraduate lower graduate level seminar philosophical discussion about language and the nature of reality by the way just in case we're wrong about all of it you can't blame us yeah if it's bullshit you shouldn't have listened so yeah um that's my final thought good